Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. The Supreme Court term wrapped up last week, and with it now in our rear view, we'll be spending the entire show talking about what to make of all the action. The court ruled on some potential blockbusters, like the travel ban, how to draw electoral maps, and the fight over a baker's refusal to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. But it didn't all pan out the way court watchers were expecting. To talk with us about it, a little later in the show, we'll be joined by Willie J., co-chair of Goodwin Proctor's appellate litigation practice, and no stranger before the high court. But first, I'm going to talk about the term with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, I love talking Supreme Court. It's our last chance for like, at least a few months. It's like the end of the school year. I was it just is. about to say the exact same thing. They're milling around. Stephen Breyer signs right. Elena Kagan's yearbook. Have a kick-ass summer. We don't have work tomorrow. Uh, (laughs) Right. It it does have that vibe, yeah. Yeah. Um, So what I wanted to do to sort of just give our listeners some top-line stats, because we crunch a lot of numbers about the Supreme Court terms Mm -hmm. here at Law 360. Crunching them. So last term, if if anybody recalls, was a little bit snoozy. Um, They faced the possibility of a lot of 4-4 splits, because Gorsuch didn't come on to the the court until very late in the term. So they avoided a lot of the controversial issues. But it's the opposite this term. They took up lots of controversial topics, and that divisiveness led to um, some real shift in numbers. Mm -hmm. In the 2017 term, that's the one we just ended, there were 20 unanimous decisions. That's down from 32 the prior year. Wow. Yes, yeah, so that's a big change. Huge drop. And we also had a lot more um, heavily split rulings. So there were 18 5-4 rulings this term. And that was up from just three the year before. Wow. Yeah, and the three is, um, just to be clear, that was Gorsuch wasn't on the court until the very end of the term. So there wasn't a ton of opportunity for these five fours. Right. But it does show that we really spiked right back up there to a lot of close Well, and, and then when Gorsuch was chosen and seated, it was like, we're going to see a lot. That was the that was yep. the conventional wisdom in it, and it came to bear. Right. Yeah. Um, but a lot of these contentious cases didn't play out exactly how we expected. Uh-huh. Um, there was some punting this year, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this with mm-hmm. Willie J. But we did have... The Masterpiece Cake Shop, that's the one over the same-sex... Right. The cake for the same-sex couple. Right. They didn't get to the core issues on that. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happened with the two gerrymandering cases that were closely watched. They didn't get to the core issues on that either. And those two cases were... were, I mean, we talked about on the show. I think they were some of the biggest cases we were looking for. So sort of a a letdown. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with all those really tightly split cases, uh, I have to think that the oral arguments were pretty lively this year, too. Well, this is a story of some things change and other things stay the same. So Justice Clarence Thomas still didn't talk during the oral arguments. He did have his quip a couple of years ago about the, the, the Yale-Harvard joke. Um, yeah. He, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it wasn't like technically. I forget what it was, but but he did speak like right. Yeah. Well, this is another well, year and where then everybody wrote about it. Right. It was that, exactly. that, that exactly. is news. Yep. Him speak him not speaking is not we, news. We didn't have those stories this year. Another year where he didn't talk. Yeah. Um, Justice Stephen Breyer led the court in um, talking during oral arguments, mm-hmm. and that's just like last year. So he had the most. Um, the way we have calculated it is the lines in an oral argument transcript. Yeah. Script. So mm-hmm. he had the most of that. Sure. But we did have one thing that was a little different this year. Sonia Sotomayor took on a larger role, making the most remarks on average per case. Yeah, uh-huh. she, she spoke up the most, if yeah. not always the longest. Right. Yes. So she averaged 25 remarks per oral argument, and that's compared to Breyer's 21 remarks. He's the next closest. These numbers really are crunched. I'm uh, I'm enjoying yeah, this. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's kind of fun. 538 to... over here. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's kind of fun for Supreme Court nerds like me to see yeah, exactly definitely. how it all plays out. Yep. Yeah, especially changing from term to term. Right. Yeah. 
So the I have to think also dissents uh, intensified with with all this way up, man. Yep. Um, even with some of the rulings where things sort of fizzled out, the gerrymandering and masterpiece cake, um, it was still just so many divisive cases yep. that mm-hmm. we had that there were a ton more dissents. So yeah. um, several cases pushed more than one justice to write a dissent on that case. The privacy dispute we've talked about on the show before, Carpenter versus the U.S., it was over those cell phone location records. Yep, yep, yep. Each of the four justices who didn't sign on to the majority wrote a separate dissent. <laughs> wow. And that hasn't happened since um, 2015 when we had the Obergefell decision. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it has to be pretty contentious to get four separate dissents. Yeah. And we're going to talk about some of those dissents uh, in detail here in a couple minutes. We but, are. Uh, and let me give you one last stat that I love about this. Uh, there were... 32 dissents the mm-hmm. previous term. That was dwarfed this year. There were 51 dissents. Wow. Cool. So, yeah. and and I mean, a lot of the what, what we've just been talking about is how closely split this term was and how many dissents there were. And, and uh, you know, those 5-4 rulings, the vast majority of them were going toward the conservative wing of the court. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the biggest trends that, that that all of us have taken away from from this term is just how conservative it was. Yeah. Um, Brandon Lowry, one of our reporters here, had a really great story about the um, about all the dissents, and he 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 quoted the dean of UC Berkeley Law in there, calling mm-hmm. it the most conservative term since 1935. Wow! So, um, and it's interesting in the context of we're going to talk with Willie J about Kennedy, and we talked about it last week, but the idea of how much the the retirement of Kennedy is going to make a difference on the court. Yeah. This term, he was a rock-solid conservative in the, vote. In the most recent uh, iteration, yeah. Well, let's talk about a few of them. What were some yeah. of the big ones? So, um, yeah, we have uh, sort of a you know a, a murderous row of, of conservative rulings that all came down 5-4. There was Epic Systems, which was the one about um, employers using arbitration agreements to bar their employees from joining workplace class actions. Mm-hmm. Um, there was American Express, which had to do with um, whether or not American Express had violated antitrust law by by telling its merchants what they could do. For the swipe fees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there was the Texas gerrymandering case, which was um, it was racial gerrymandering, and the court um, overturned a lower court ruling that said that that this district map in in Texas had discriminated based on race. Yeah. Um, there was the, the the California ruling about information um, regarding abortion. There was, and then just this last week, we had um, the court upheld by a five four vote. Uh, President Trump's ban on on yep we talked about from that all Muslim last week. countries and um and then the court also ruled last week that uh, that uh, public sector employees could not be forced to um, to pay into into their unions so that yeah. was another huge um, sort of traditional conservative victory at the court and if anybody wants all of our takes about travel ban and about Janice that ruling <laughs> yep. about union dues. Last week's show, guys, we broke down both of those in detail. Got deeply into them. Yeah. Yeah. So those were all the five fours. We've been talking a lot about mm-hmm. that. But there were some others that weren't that breakup of the court. Yeah. I mean, the defining characteristic, I think, of this term were all these five four rulings that went the way that people thought they would go. But there were a few, as there usually are, that, that sort of are head scratchers in terms of, you know, it's funny. It's sort of an odd couple when you see different justices, you it, know. It, sure. It, it, right. it reminds me of like a of like a, of a TV show with a big ensemble. And then the writers always have fun pairing them off. You used to see this a lot right. on Lost right. and stuff. Yeah. But yeah. The yeah, yeah. B story now features. Exactly. I don't think yeah. we've ever been in a scene together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, let's, um, let's have these people hang. So first off, there was Masterpiece Cake, which was the big gay rights ruling, mm-hmm. um, or well, we, we were expecting to be a big ruling, <laughs> right. but they, they sort of punted on. But um, in that case, Justice Kagan and um, Justice Stephen Breyer joined the conservative justices to make a seven-justice majority that issued the very, very limited ruling that sort of punted 
sent the case back to a lower court. Right. So um, so you can kind of understand how that weird pairing happened because it was such a limited ruling. Well, and a lot of people sort of read the tea leaves that, you know, um, Kennedy wrote this. Kennedy wrote the ruling. Yeah. He has obviously been a very outspoken voice on the court in terms of gay rights. He wrote this very limited ruling that sort of maybe, you know, backed into endorsing the idea of these kind of um, public accommodation laws yeah. in, a, in a way that, you know, so sort of like, uh, you know, it was it wasn't really a conservative victory. If, if anything, in the long term, it might have been more of a. And if liberal. anything, him prying open that door is how he got the two. He, sort yeah, of liberal correct. Justices he got more of a him. consensus ruling mm-hmm. to to rule on. Um, and there was also uh, Sessions v. v. Diama, um, where Gorsuch joined the liberal wing in um, ruling that there was this provision that that dictated when um, uh, an immigrant could be deported, like when there was a crime of violence. And um, Gorsuch joined all the liberal justices in finding the provision to be unconstitutionally vague. So yeah. that was the the opposite way, where right. a conservative justice joined the, the liberals. So um, it wasn't all these five fours, but for the most part, it was. But there were lots of them. And with sort of partisan splits like that, we, of course, got a lot of interesting dissents. Um, and as you said, Amber, we went really deep on uh, Janus, which was the public sector union fee case with Vin, and we had a whole thing about Kagan's dissent uh, there, where she basically basically went scorched earth on the majority for upending I loved it's... her term, blacked rogue right. rulers. Yeah. yeah, she really went hardcore on that. So so, so we went deep on that, um, but just a couple other uh, interesting ascents to highlight here. Um, as you mentioned, uh, the Epic case, um, which basically upheld the idea that, you know, you uh, employers can have these contracts that force workers to arbitrate, uh, you know, wage claims instead of pursuing class actions. Um, Ginsburg uh, spared no quarter there. She basically uh, used a term uh, going back to sort of the pre-Depression era called yellow dog contracts. This, uh-huh. is, this is sort of what led to the rise of New Deal labor reforms, she wrote. Um if these untoward consequences stemmed from legislative choices, I would be obliged to accede to them. But the edict that employees with wage and hours claims may seek relief only one by one does not come from Congress. It is the result of take-it-or-leave-it labor contracts harking back to the type called yellow dog and of the readiness of this court to enforce these unbargained-for agreements, yeah, which I thought so. was interesting just because it's she's getting at there a big criticism of this. It was just like, it's a contract but it's not a contract that is often negotiated by right. two sure. sides. It's a contract that's presented to you as a condition sure. of employment. Um, so that was interesting. We also had an interesting dissent um, from the conservative wing, uh, funnily enough, in a case that wasn't even brought up. Um, this was a dissent from Clarence Thomas in a case called Sylvester v. Becerra, which the court denied. And mm-hmm. he issued a, a, a dissent saying uh, we should have taken it up. This dealt with the Second Amendment. This was a challenge to California's 10-day waiting period uh, for gun sales. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, if a lower court treated another right so cavalierly, I have little doubt that this court would intervene. But as evidenced by our continued inaction in this area, the Second Amendment is a disfavored right in this court. Which is interesting wow. because he's saying... They've not been active in hearing Second Amendment cases, and it's led to, you know, the Second Amendment being trampled upon. I'm sure that critics would say it might be quite the opposite, and they should hear some Second Amendment cases maybe reining it in. So that was sort of an interesting window into his thinking, and he's never shy about writing dissents. Um, perhaps the most sort of uh, forceful uh, sweeping dissent came from Sonia Sotomayor in the travel ban case, which we've talked about. And uh, in this quote that I'm going to read you, she is referencing um, the corollary between the travel ban case 
and the Korematsu ruling, which, which is never a comparison that anybody wants. Yeah, to be I mean, this around. is this is the Supreme Court decision from the 40s that upheld the United States use of internment camps during World War II, and is generally regarded, as you say, as like a complete black mark in sure. the history of this country. Top three bottom rulings. Ever. Yeah, with, yep, without a doubt. And she again drawing a corollary between the two. She said. As here, the government invoked an ill-defined national security threat to justify an exclusionary policy of sweeping proportion. As here, the exclusion order was rooted in dangerous stereotypes about a particular group's supposed inability to assimilate and desire to harm the United States. As here, the government was unwilling to reveal it, its own intelligent agency's views of the alleged security concerns to the very citizens it purported to protect. And as here, there was strong evidence that impermissible hostility and animus motivated the government's policy so oh. sparing no quarter yeah. there for her distaste for the travel ban like linking it to this very dark chapter in american history well so, and yeah. as we move forward with what uh, most likely will be a court that has a, a very strong 5-4 conservative majority right. we're going to see more of these kind of things i think going forward without a doubt just wrapped last week, the U.S. Supreme Court was back at full strength, and the justices worked their way through a docket full of blockbusters. But what are we going to remember years from now? And looking ahead, how will Justice Anthony Kennedy's retirement reshape the court? With us this week to help us make sense of the Supreme Court term is Willie Jay, co-chair of Goodwin Proctor's appellate litigation practice and a former assistant solicitor general who's argued 16 cases before the high court. Welcome, Willie. Thanks so much for having me. So, Willie, one of the things that one of the, the trends that, you know, that we saw this year was uh, the, the, the previous term had been a little sleepy. You know, it was the it was the Scalia list term. And it seemed like the court was sort of holding off until they were at full strength. This term, we had a lot of cases that, that everyone was was keeping an eye on. But some of them ended in what I think people described as as sort of a punt. Um, is there anything we can read into uh, some of these cases, the, the the masterpiece cake shops of the world that that, you know, is there anything we can read into the fact that the court sort of dodged the, the main question here? Uh, it's an interesting, uh, interesting question, especially now that we know that last term was to be Justice Kennedy's last term. Right. Um, but yes, Justice Ginsburg said at the beginning of the term that one thing that was guaranteed was that the term was going to be momentous. Um, but she may well have been thinking about, for example, the two cases that the court wound up hearing about gerrymandering, mm -hmm. uh, which produced no real revolutions in the law except for uh, a new wrinkle on standing for cases like that. Right. Um, uh, I think that it really does reflect the fact that uh, it doesn't take uh, a majority to grant cert and that when you are uh, in the group of four justices who vote to grant cert, you don't necessarily know what is going to happen uh, when the case is heard and decided on the merits. And the thing that I think most people surmised from both Masterpiece Cake Shop and the gerrymandering cases uh, was simply that there was not a majority to go any further. Right. And there were some cases that came out this term that were sort of forceful and, and really got to the heart of heart of the matter, right? 
That's certainly true. I mean, and the Janus is the most obvious example, but that's a binary case. There were only two possible outcomes. <laughs> right. Either you overrule a boot or you don't overrule a boot. And that is why, even though the court really hates to divide four to four, when Justice Scalia died and the court had a case just like this one pending before it, uh, on basically its next business day, the court released an affirmance by an equally divided court because it was clear they were divided four to four. And there was nothing else to say. Uh, so now that there's a ninth justice, uh, once they took it up, again, there really wasn't uh, any middle ground way to decide the case. Either they were going to overrule their prior precedent or not. And that wasn't the only one, too, Willie. I mean, I would be curious to hear your comments on this dynamic that emerges sometimes where, as you say, they don't always want to tread into the law and being too intrusive. But then there are other cases um, like Janus and then also Wayfair, the online uh, state tax case, um, where they're just kind of upending decades worth of precedent. I, as an observer of the court, I always find that interesting just to know like when they decide to which lever to pull. I mean, what do you think about that? Uh, it was really interesting. Now, I should uh, give you the disclaimer that we filed a brief in the Wayfair case for Etsy, the online marketplace, wow. uh, urging the court not to change the law. Uh, and our brief was actually cited in the dissent. Um, so it only got our position only got four votes. Um, Understood. But it, one one thing that's interesting about that is that the chief justice's dissent said, "Yes, I agree that the prior precedent was wrong, mm -hmm. but we should keep it anyway." Uh, and that is unusual for a stare decisis case. You know, a ca uh, for a case to be uh, really about stare decisis rather than having stare decisis be a proxy for. Uh, some justices who think the prior president was right and mm -hmm. want to keep it, and others who think it was wrong and want to get rid of it. Uh, several members of the court had signaled that they were unhappy with the precedent uh, from North Dakota versus Quill. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, it wasn't a surprise when the court agreed to hear the, the case. It wasn't a surprise that you know Justice Kennedy and Justice Gorsuch were in the majority because both of them had signaled their criticisms of that. And Justice Thomas, of course, had, uh, uh, has a broader disagreement with the court's Dormant Commerce Clause jurisprudence. So, uh, But they still had to get to five, and it was not clear right up until the, the moment when the decision came out that there were going to be enough votes to overturn Quill. So you also, in that answer, mentioned Justice Gorsuch, and that's something I really want to talk about because we had him... Um, last term, but only for part of the term. This was really his big coming out party um, this year about what kind of justice he would be. So after a year of decisions, where does he stand? Is he as conservative as people thought he would be on the court? Well, I guess I would resist the term conservative because it's very easy to confuse uh, the term conservative with a justice who will support conservative results. Yeah. You know, you might think that a conservative means a law and order justice who will vote against criminal defendants and for the prosecution. Uh, but and I, like his predecessor, Justice Scalia, uh, Justice Gorsuch certainly does not line up uniformly with law enforcement. So that that's one good example where he's not uh, 
he's not shown himself to be a conservative in that sense, but a judicial conservative in the sense of uh, someone who applies a consistent judicial philosophy of textualism and when interpreting the Constitution, originalism. Uh, I think he has come as advertised. You know, those are the methodologies that he employs, and he has employed them pretty consistently over the course of the term. Let's talk about the term. Let's let's pull back and talk about the term in general. In terms of, was there anything that really like surprised you that that you know when you're you're watching that that just came out differently than than you thought it might? Uh, well, the uh, the gerrymandering decisions, and in particular the Maryland case, Benisek, mm-hmm. uh, the court does have to hear these cases. In, in some sense, there is a statute that says challenges to a statewide districting map go to a three-judge district court, and the Supreme Court has to hear them on appeal instead of uh, as a matter of its discretion. But if the court doesn't want to hear uh, such a case because there's nothing worth the court's sustained attention, it just affirms you know, in like a one-sentence order. Uh, if it had wanted to um, get rid of Benisek on the ground that... Um, the district court didn't deny, didn't abuse its discretion in denying a preliminary injunction. It could have just done that right off the bat. I think everybody thought that when it agreed to hear a second gerrymandering case in the same term when it had already heard the Wisconsin case, Gill, that that was a signal that it was going to do something different in the Maryland case and that there was some feature of the Maryland case made it more attractive to the court right. for it to resolve the contested questions. Now, maybe that's that they made a more of a First Amendment argument. Maybe that's that they were challenging a single district rather than a whole statewide map. Maybe that's a standing issue. Uh, maybe it's it is as simple as uh, the partisan orientation of the map and the challengers. Uh, well, none of those turned out to be right, at least in terms of the final outcome. Yeah, I mean, I think here at Law 360, we too thought, oh, they've got two of these. They're going to really make some waves in addressing partisan gerrymandering. And in one of them, yeah. yeah. Well, we yeah, mentioned we mentioned shots. we mentioned earlier that that uh, Justice Ginsburg that this was the case or the the um, the Gill case was the case that she was referring to when she said that you know this is a huge case that we're all watching. So uh, to see to see nothing really come from it, yeah. Yeah. So what do you um, think? Sort of the ripple effects from that particular issue will be since we did it did end in a bit of a whimper for people who thought we'd get some strong resolution. Um, Well, Justice Kagan, in her concurrence, suggested that essentially there is a roadmap that future plaintiffs challenging a map as gerrymandered ought to follow, and this is what it looks like. Um, I think a lot of people thought that that carried with it the subtext, this is what Justice Kennedy wants to see in a future gerrymandering challenge, Uh, but... It appears he will not be around to hear those. <laughs> well, that's a great that's a great way to transition to uh, sort of the elephant in the room here. That let's let's talk about Kennedy. I mean, that was I think that that maybe will be the biggest thing that we remember here. That that you know this was the this was Justice Kennedy's last term. So you know what can we expect? Um, you know, you know what does what does a new justice coming onto the court mean going forward? I mean, t- talk to us a little bit about from your perspective what this will mean going forward for the court. Uh, well, there are a couple things I'd like to talk about. I mean, number one is just uh, the a point that a number of the justices have made themselves over the years, that when a new justice comes on to the court, even though only one out of the nine people 
is different, mm-hmm. it's still a different group. Yeah. It changes the court. And they say it's a whole new court right. uh, formed by that, uh, you know, uh, 11% change in personnel. Well, it really I, just I have uh, to th- ref- reforms everything. I have to think that, that it's more than the sum of its parts, right? Like you assume that, that one vote will be there when you, ta- when you take cases, when you are crafting who, how you're going to you know, write an opinion that, that you'll have this person's vote, um, that, it, that it really does make more than just that, that one justice being different. Uh, I think that that's right. And in particular, uh, recall that the justices don't really talk about how they plan to vote before oral argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you have a court of nine members that have been together for a long time and that know each other well, some of the uh, moves that a justice might make or some of the things that a justice might be concerned about um, will be apparent to his or her colleagues without him or her having to say anything. Yeah, I mean, Kennedy's been there for 30 years. Yeah, I mean, they they, they pick up on his movements. Right. And it is certainly not not just true of Justice Kennedy, but that's right. Right. Justice Kennedy was the longest serving associate justice. He'd been there for the entire time that all of the other justices had been on the court. Right. And, you know, it's literally true that none of them has ever known the court without Justice Kennedy, except, you know, possibly as a law clerk years before they were justices themselves. And do we anticipate a new pick could really shake up how oral arguments work? I mean, I know Kennedy was maybe not the most dominant voice. Um, We could get someone who's a lot more persuasive and asks a lot more questions in oral argument out of a new justice. Every single one of the recent appointments to the court, with the possible exception of Justice Gorsuch, uh, has been a more active questioner than his or her predecessor. Mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily mean a better questioner, because, you know, for example, Justice Souter uh, was a uh, very skilled and tenacious questioner. But he, in volume, he didn't ask as many questions as his successor uh, does. And the same thing, you know, with, for example, you know, Justice Alito and Justice O'Connor, or Justice Kagan and Justice Stevens. Uh, And so, uh, Justice Kennedy, as you said in the question, asks questions of particular concern to him, but often not more than a few in the course of an argument. And having a new justice, especially if it's someone who comes from the appellate bench, they're used to being a panel of a member of a panel of three uh, and having more time and fewer competitors for airtime. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of the people on the short list uh, are active questioners. Several of them have also been law professors who are used to the Socratic method, the kind of yeah. uh, question and answer mode of reaching a resolution of an issue. So I think uh, it's entirely possible that we'll see a, a new justice who's a very active questioner right off the bat. I mean, Justice Scalia, when he first came on the court, uh, was, you know, quietly ribbed or criticized by some of his colleagues for the sheer number of questions that he asked. Supposedly, Justice Powell sent another justice a note saying, do you think he knows the rest of us are here? Uh, <laughs> well, Willie... Uh, but I think that you know, new justices don't always hold back. Right? Yeah, uh, and, and, uh, you know, and nor should they. You know, they have one vote out of nine, right. and they have, to, uh, they have to use the process that they think best to figure out how they're going to vote. And Willie, you've been before the court many times. Does this change for people like you? Um, your strategy going in, because presumably the attorneys won't have as much airtime to sort of get through their argument in the way they want to present it if they're peppered with questions right off the bat. You know, a, a more active questioner 
uh, is definitely going to mean that crispness and precision are going to be even more valuable next term than they were this term. You don't get a lot of airtime to get your answers out, so you have to be as responsive as possible right off the bat. There's really no time in an argument for throat clearing. Willie, we're almost out of time, so we'll get you out of here on this. Just kind of pivoting back to the term as a whole as it sits in our rearview mirror. If you're talking to somebody five years from now, 10 years from now, and they ask you, you know, what is sort of the legacy of the 2017 Supreme Court term? What are the, the, the sort of log line elevator pitch about what happened in this term? What will you think about? What, what, what would you say to such a question? Um, well, it obviously is going to be the last term with Justice Kennedy sitting figuratively in the center seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it will also be, I think, a term when some seeds were planted for the future. Uh, so, for example, Carpenter, a case we haven't talked about, but a case about digital privacy, right. you know, featuring the chief, the chief justice lining up with the four more liberal justices, uh, and Justice Gorsuch writing a separate dissent that I think in many ways is broadly sympathetic to the uh, challenger to the uh, to the search. In other words, to uh, a broadly pro-privacy, mm-hmm. anti-warrantless uh, search. Uh, opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, the court wrote in some ways a narrow opinion, but this is technology that is uh, in use, you know, in every household and that's incredibly important to law enforcement. So how this is going to work and how this is going to shape the expectations of privacy uh, that uh, magistrate judges have to deal with in approving search warrants uh, is going to be hugely important. And uh, the court left a lot of work for future courts and scholars and prosecutors and defense lawyers to work through. I think that's going to be one of the uh, things the court did this term that's going to have the most significant knock-on effects down the road. Willie, that is a perfect place to end us uh, looking forward to future terms and what this one will mean. Thanks for explaining it all to us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. guys this whole show we've talked about a lot of cases that were really heavy um, yeah some things that were yeah you know some really serious issues any any show where you have someone throwing around korematsu you're like oh, <laughs> yeah pretty got heavy. pretty dark yep. yeah right but there were some lighter moments this term and we mm-hmm. have a little audio of a few of the ones that sort of lifted the mood at the court so i thought we'd end the show by talking about a couple yeah. of those let's do it so the first one i want to bring up um is again a heavy topic. It's a price-fixing antitrust case. And there was this main question about how much deference you give foreign governments that are part of U.S. litigation. Oh, this mm-hmm. is Chinese vitamin C. That's the one, yeah, Alex. Nice. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so there are two possible standards they were talking about in this oral argument. One is strict deference, and then there's this concept of respectful consideration. Ah, yep. So that leads us to this clip. I, I, have, I don't understand this constant em- emphasis on respectful. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't disagree, right? I mean, you know, with all due respect, usually means the person's about to say you're, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, respectfully, Your Honor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is like literally a, like Curb Your Enthusiasm dialogue, <laughs> yes, isn't it? Definitely. I, <laughs> wasn't this? There was one guy. Having said that. There was yeah. one guy deep in the background that was like, ha! <laughs> 
I was gonna say like the the performative laughter when any whenever anyone d- like says something that even resembles the vague posture of a joke is like very powerful. I do kind of like the notion though that you know as an attorney presenting before a Supreme Court panel, you've got to be pretty nervous. So yeah, to even yeah, make yeah. this joke to then respectfully, Your Honor, it's that's pretty good. I liked it. I'm it's into good. It. He goes back. He's like, I killed in there, you guys. <laughs> they were laughing at my jokes. What about the argument? Eh, we, don't, we don't have to worry about that so much. Uh, it's yeah, it's yeah. vitamin C. I don't know. I don't I, know. Maybe we lose. Who knows? <laughs> Uh, and then what was the other one? The- so there's a second one that came up in Masterpiece Cake Shop, and it's a hot take on wedding cakes. Wow. More important. In fact, I have yet to have a, a wedding cake that I would say tastes great. And, and Your Honor, uh, my <laughs> wedding cake, the top of it is still sitting in our freezer, and I'm sure it no longer tastes great. <laughs> that was that was Gorsuch, right? I think he was the one. Yeah, I think so. And uh, I mean, I just as we were talking about before we started recording, it, it's just fun. I mean. They are arguing and deciding matters of very important government policy and jurisprudence. But I also just like the idea of the Supreme Court as like an incubator of takes. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. like, like you and your friend could argue about whether or not you like cake or pie or some other dessert at a bar or something. Right. And Gorsuch just can't help but <laughs> just be like, cake, by the way, sucks. Like that's, that's, that, that's his little digression. I've, never been, I've, I've just, I'm not a big fan of wedding cake. No, no yeah. I mean. I go to a lot of weddings yeah, and it's not, it's yeah. never an item that I'll have. I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of cake generally. I've always been a pie guy. Now, are you talking about the band so, cake? you guys are apparently qualified to be Supreme Court justices is because you're sharing some some lines of thought there. Masterpiece take shop here. <laughs> there you Am go. I right? nice. There yeah, you go. Nice. He was sitting on that for a while. Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm going to let him have that as the end <laughs> of the show. Thanks. I mean, well, what you're actually letting you're letting yourself have me saying you're letting have it at the end of the show. <sighs> so I'm um, so I'm happy about that. Let's get you out know, of here. We All were right. we were better before you said that, Alex. <laughs> All right, that'll wrap us up for today. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next term. We'll we'll be back next week. <laughs> and Alex. Thanks, guys. We've got a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Willie J, and contributing reporters this week, Brandon Lowry, Sindhu Sundar, Amanda James, Jimmy Hoover, and Jackie Bell. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to learn more about anything we talked about, and boy, did we have a lot of Supreme Court coverage, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps other people find us. Thanks, and see you again next week.